Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, on the morning of November 10th, 1918, the overnight train from Berlin arrived in Warsaw Station. One of its passengers was Josef Pilsudski. For 26 years, he had been striving for the liberation of Poland from the Russian Empire and its recreation, its resurrection even, as an independent state and culture. Now, at the end of that train journey, he not only found himself at long last in a free Poland, but surrounded by ever-growing crowds that saw him as the leader of the new nation. Pilsudski did become the leader of Poland, and when the time came, ceded dictatorial powers to democratically elected representatives. Yet, just four years later, this avowed champion of democracy, pluralism, and federalism seized power in a coup and ruled Poland as a dictator until his death in 1935. He imprisoned his enemies, suppressed the press, ignored the legislature, and turned old friends against him. So much did his style of rule change, writes my guest Joshua Zimmerman, that he is often portrayed as if he were two entirely different men, Poland's greatest champion for freedom and independence, who abandoned the principle of democracy as freedom bound by the rule of law. Joshua Zimmerman is Eli and Diana Zaborowski Chair in Holocaust Studies and East European Jewish History and Professor of History at Yeshiva University. Two of his previous books include The Polish Underground of the Jew, 1939-1945, and Poles, Jews, and the Politics of Nationality, The Bund and the Polish Socialist Party in Late Tsarist Russia, 1892-1914. Given the focus of his research in those two books, it was probably as close to inevitable as a historian could possibly allow that his new book would be Joseph Pilsudski, Founding Father of Modern Poland. Josh Zimmerman, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm so glad I caught this book caught my eye in the Harvard University Press Catalog because it's given me an opportunity to acquaint myself with one of the most fascinating people I've barely heard of. Um, so we have a very educated and cultured audience, but a lot of them are saying, jo- jo- what, who? So who is Joseph Pilsudski briefly, and why is Joseph Pilsudski important? I would begin by just saying that Pilsudski was... Poland's founding father, uh, modern Poland's founding father, because the state um, uh, in the 18th century was wiped off the map of Europe in 1795. So throughout the whole of the 19th century and into World War I, Poland was partitioned between Russia, um, Prussia, then Germany, and Austria, uh, which became Austria-Hungary. And 123 years later, Later, it reemerged as a state on November 11th, 1918, literally the day that the guns of Europe fell silent at 5 p.m. and World War I ended. Uh, Pilsudski was named commander-in-chief of the armed forces of a new entity uh, called Poland. And then three days later, the then acting authorities who had been placed there by the German occupiers handed over complete power to Pilsudski, naming him as head of state. Uh, And so at that moment, which was November 14th, 1918, he had absolute power. And then he went about in a very methodical way in a a democratic transition in which he established um, 
democratic institutions, rule of law, uh, a freely elected parliament, which then um, drafted a constitution, um, the right of women to vote, an independent judiciary, um, all basic freedoms. And so in that sense, he is the founding father. In a, in, there's another sense in which he mirrors in some ways George Washington, is that he was not only head of state, but he was this, he was this commander-in-chief who was then named Marshal of Poland, and he would personally lead um, troops in 1920 in a war with Bolshevik Russia, becoming the only armed force uh, in, um, in that period to defeat the Bolsheviks or the Red Army. He will defeat them uh, and then carve out an eastern frontier uh, and achieve um, an armistice at what's called the Treaty of Riga in 1921, in which Bolshevik Russia recognizes um, that frontier and there's a kind of stabilization um, of Eastern Europe. So that's him as a founding father. So the context, you've already discussed uh, the dismemberment of Poland and the erasure of Poland. Pilsudski was born in 1867. Uh, The revolt of 1863 is something he comes back to again and again and again. So what's the Poland situation in the 1860s? What's the revolt? What's Poland's situation after the revolt? So this is a kind of towering subject uh, and, 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 and stands at the center of Pilsudski's thinking, is that we should think of this. He's born roughly five years, four years after the 1863 Polish insurrection. And by the way, that insurrection in and of itself is not that well known in the West. And I, and I have this memory uh, when I was in Poland of meeting uh, a Polish teacher who told me she thought that was um, one, of, you know, one of the most important events in the 19th century. And I said, well, it's very little known outside of, of Poland. And she says, well, that's wrong. It should be known as one of the most critical events. So I think inside the Polish national psychology, they regard it as central. So I just want to say this. So Pilsudski's family was, um, his, his parents owned uh, four estates and his father actually was in the insurrection. He was named uh, uh, as governor of a region that had been liberated in Lithuania. And so he, his father was part of the insurrection. Um, he had family that um, participated. He had his, his own grandmother was arrested for conspiracy to provide safe uh, havens for insurrectionists and to use her home as a place where munitions and arms were stored. So she was arrested. He had several uh, distant cousins who were um, banished to Siberia um, after the insurrection and never returned and were known to have passed away within years. So whatever was happening was horrific. Um, And his his, um, uh, family was forced to flee the region and three of their four estates were, were confiscated by the Russians. That was part of the, the kind of uh, reaction of the Russian um, state to this insurrection. Once it was quelled, was not only the arrests, um, mass arrests, um, the exile, we think of um, something like 18 to 20,000 Poles into Siberia, but then executions, right, repression, confiscation of lands. So uh, the sources that I bring to bear in that early childhood is is um, both from Pilsudski, who who um, wrote um, uh, 
um, essays and memoirs that were autobiographical around 1902, 1903. And there he says that the subject of 1863 was like the white elephant in the room in his home. Why? But he was able to flee the region and all, and all the uncles. But he said that that actually there were fugitives of from the insurrection who were who were being housed in their home, and 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 he remembered that being a discussion. Then Pilsudski had an older brother Bronislav, um, who was interviewed um, uh, much later um, while he was in Siberian exile. That's part of the story that both the Pilsudski of the of the subject and his older brother. But in, in exile, what we know is that a Polish um, journalist uh, somehow was able to um, interview Piłsudski's older brother. And that journalist in 1915, his name was Wacław Sieroszewski, wrote the first biography of Piłsudski. It was in 1915. And in that, he cites his interviews with Bronisław Piłsudski, that's Piłsudski's older brother, and that's where we have, it's a very rich source because there Bronisov says that the subject of 1863 was at the center of our household. He said there was, he said they had an idyllic childhood in a manor house and uh, up until age seven, then they moved to Vilna at age seven. Uh, but that the only thing that was this kind of sense of, of kind of doom and sense of like national shame uh, was the insurrection that had failed and that he, this is Bronisov talked about he and his little brother, Joseph grew up with a uh, mother who, um, who possessed uh, in the home, what were called illegal books. And those were books of the Polish 19th century poets like Mitzkevich and Krasinski um, and uh, other important um poets like Swobotsky, the three kind of bards, and that she would, and they speak about this. They had to, they had to pull down the shades. It was not legal in Russia to possess these, uh, the, these works of Polish poetry because they were national figures who talked about dreaming for the restoration of Poland. And she would read them out loud at night, uh, these, these poems. And um, I, I excerpt those poems because we know which ones were read to them. And they speak about this moment. They call it a home of conspiracy where she would take out from some kind of secret part of a of a bookcase that was you couldn't see like a secret compartment take out the so-called forbidden books read them to her children as they were going to sleep and then she would force them to memorize verses by heart uh, and then she'd put them back into these these concealed places and so they so the older brother talked about that home as a home of conspiracy. Then they go to Vilna, yeah. And what I what I love about that is is that not only are these poems hot stuff. I mean, they are romantic nationalism of 151 proof at least. I mean, uh, they are you have to read them to believe what you're reading. The Poland as the base of the crucified body of Christ. I mean, it's they combine all these things. Poland as basically the whole point of the redemption of God of the world. I mean, it's it's incredible stuff. But the fact is, is that from the age of three, four, he's being taught the habits of a conspirator. 
I mean, long before it, most of his life is spent as a, in the socialist underground, but he's being trained in almost like a like a a junior spy in the in the habits of conspiracy, of, of secrecy, of secret reading. It's You're absolutely incredible. right that the conspiracy is in the home. Uh, it was, and some his uh, biographers referred to that home as a conspiratorial home for insurrectionist ideas. They, they also speak, um, both the older brother and Pilsudski in his autobiographical essay speaks about the importance of their mother. So they had like, um, um, some say that, that Pilsudski got his intellect from his father, uh, and his, his passion for kind of justice from his mother who, who, um, they say not only said that she wished her sons would at one point uh, be soldiers in an army to liberate Poland, but that the Poland that emerges must be a decent and fair and pluralistic Poland. And for, I, I give this one example where the older brother says that they had a uh, live-in uh, cleaning, uh, live-in staff in their home. Uh, they were landed gentry. And and that if the, if there was ever the slightest tone of rudeness on the part of the children toward the staff, she would reprimand them and take them and say, "You never speak to someone like that uh, in that tone. Don't you always ask politely? You are respectful." And they talked about how there was this sense that it didn't matter who the person was; you always act in a decent in a decent way. Later on, Pilsudski would say that he transferred to the way he thought about minorities like Jews because whoever it is you you be you're supposed to act in a um you know kind of with decency there's no discrimination uh with decency yes their lot in life is a little bit different so that was that was one thing but that sense of conspiracy you know that maybe you heard footsteps outside the door you know rush the books back into the secret cabinet because they're illegal and and um and I excerpt some of those you know like for example you mentioned uh, the Jesus Christ of Nations. So Adam Mitskevich in, 19, in 1832 um, has fled um, the, the country because uh, he was uh, exiled. He was a student at the University of Vilna. He was in a secret reading group. He's sent into internal exile. He, he flees and he spends the rest of his life in, in Paris. But, but in 1832, after the 1830 um, failed uprising, he writes his books of the Polish nation, and it's kind of a biblical chronicle of the history of Poland. And there, he does speak about um, that the that the freedom of Europe depends on the resurrection of Poland. That you cannot have freedom of Europe while you suppress um, you suppress the rights of one any one people. So the Polish cause is universal. So let's talk about Vilna because it's fundamental. It would seem to me growing up there. It's fundamental to Pilsudski's approach to federalism, multi-ethnicity, and what we'll call the Jewish question. Because I'm, I'm right, Vilna is a majority Jewish city when Pilsudski is living there. So he's actually in a minority. So this is um, something central. I do make um, a, a point of this, and I'm glad that you brought this up. And that is that from age seven, Till he graduates high school, he he lives in Vilna. Vilna was the 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 
emblematic of what we call the multicultural regional capital in, in Imperial Russia. And uh, I only want to qualify one thing that you mentioned, that actually what was so critical was that no single group formed a majority in Vilna. So the, the largest group were Jews, and they formed 40%. And the next largest, largest were Poles, who formed 30%. And then you had like 22% Russians. And then you went down, um, you know, ironically, uh, Lithuanians made up only 7%. Um, but there were some other, but that mere fact that no single group formed uh, a majority meant that it was for Pilsudski natural to embrace diversity. That was not a negative thing. It was not something to overcome, but it was something to, to kind of embrace. And, um, um, and you can imagine that every day he walked to school and he had to go through a, a Jewish neighborhood and that was natural to him. He had Jewish students in his high school. Um, I wanted to just to mention something about in the introduction, if I can just read this quote from Adam, Mi, Mi, uh, sorry, Adam Michnik uh, in Polish, would be Michnik, but he is, uh, you know, a very famous person in Poland today. He's today the editor-in-chief of, of what's what the equivalent of the New York Times, Gazeta Wyborcza in Poland, and he was, of course, a solidarity activist uh, in prison for many years in the 1980s. Some of his letters were published in the New York Review of Books during that time. And he's kind of the symbol of resistance to communist rule. And uh, he wrote uh, during the communist period, he smuggled out an essay to London and used a pseudonym. And the contest that this one periodical gave was called Kultura. And the contest was to write an essay on Pilsudski. And they did a contest. Miknik wrote his piece with a pseudonym and, it, and, it, and he won first prize and it was published in, in Kultura. So in that, that was from 1973. Uh, I just wanted to read one excerpt. He talks about Vilna and Lithuania. Quote, and this is from 19, this is, this is the uh, um, opening quote of the introduction. Quote, Pilsudski saw Poland as the motherland of many nations, a commonwealth of many cultures, he wanted it to be a state in which, no, in which not only Poles, but also Lithuanians, Ukrainians, and Jews could live in solidarity. He was formed by the special climate of the Vilna province, the common motherland of peoples from different nations, cultures, and religions, unquote. And I thought that was significant that he came from that. And I think it is different if you grow up in a region in which the Poles make up an absolute majority, like in Warsaw. You know, um, you're used to that. Polish dominates, uh, and and um, and there was, uh, you know, a difference in his thinking about where, what Poland means, and what his vision for it was. And that was a multinational, multicultural, religious um, state, but one of toleration. At some point, he becomes a high school socialist, which you know, I mean, sure that everyone does that. Um, so we w might not take it too seriously, except that bad things happen because, amazingly enough, the Pilsudskis and the Ulyanovs get together. Could you briefly describe how the how Vladimir uh, Lenin's older brother and Bronislav, Bronislav Pilsudski sort of get mixed up in a plot to kill yeah. the Tsar? So this is an extraordinary story that Pilsudski and his brother – they're one year apart. They actually sit in the same class in the, what's called the Vilna State, the Russian State Gymnasium in Vilna. 
And this is just an amazing story that Pilsudski's older brother and Vladimir Lenin's older brother are part of a conspiracy in 1887 to assassinate Tsar Alexander III. And they're both con- convicted of this crime, uh, uh, which, is, which is conspiracy. It didn't actually happen. And Lenin's older brother was in the center of the conspiracy. And he was actually one of, one of the four co-conspirators to, to be executed for that crime. But Bronislav, who was not inside the central committee of this terrorist wing of a party, was banished to 15-year Siberian exile. Pilsudski also was embroiled in the conflict in a very unfortunate way, which is that, yeah, it's very marginal. And, and I don't know if, if the listeners would be interested. And just that Bronislav was at St. Petersburg University. You know, and so there is where he met um, Lenin's older brother and became in some way involved in this conspiracy. And then on, in, a summer visit, uh, in, a, in a summer visit to Vilna, he, um, he basically is accompanied by one of the Russian co-conspirators who needs kind of like a place to stay for a couple of days while he's preparing the, you know, uh, some kind of like uh, uh, substance for a bomb to bring back to St. Petersburg. And, and Bronislav gives the name of his younger brother and said, you can stay with him and his family there for a couple of days. Pilsudski, our subject, knew nothing about it, but the very matter of fact that he was, uh, he knew this person for two days he ended up getting five years Siberian exile in that plot. And so Pilsudski is, my impression is he's very unformed at the time. He's, uh, and Siberia, and I realize this is kind of the, the this is kind of a, a problem for the entire czarist regime and the way they use Siberia. Siberia turns into sort of a graduate course in socialist revolutionary tactics and ideology, not just for Pilsudski, but obviously for all the people that eventually do overthrow the Tsarist regime. They meet other people, they meet other Poles or other Russians or whatever, Ukrainians, they get together, they talk about Marx, uh, they talk about, you know, gosh, what's the best kind of high explosive that's that being developed these days and, you know, things like that. And, and before you know it, they've, they've become more effective as revolutionaries than they were before they were exiled. So about that period of exile, Pilsudski, because he actually was uh, encountered this Russian uh, revolutionary who then gets accused of um, the plot. Uh, and gets the gets five years in exile. By the way, his brother is banished to the Sakhalin Islands, uh, which is island uh, between the, you know, off the coast of Japan. Really, it's between Japan and the. It's in the Pacific. But can I just say that? And you know, I think that the five year period of Siberian exile. It's between. Um, it's between eighteen eighty seven and eighteen ninety two. It followed Pilsudski's first year of college. So he went to Kharkov. Uh, university. Um, and then it's the, in, the, in the summer between his first and what would, what would be his second year that this conspiracy uh, happened. And that's when he was, um, um, when he was kind of banished uh, to Siberian exile. And it's in exile. I would just say that, that he met there some key people, and I mentioned them in my book. Among them, is, it's really extraordinary to think about that, is that in, in lieu of kind of a college education, he met these senior members uh, of what had been the conspiracy of 1863. So I'll give you an example. The most significant figure he met 
was someone named Bronisław Schwartz. He had been for already in exile for 27 years. Why? He had been part of the 1863 uprising, he had, and he was in a uh, he had been given a sentence of 30 years exile. He was in like his 27th year of exile. So, so Pilsudski, who's 19, meets this. I believe it was 52 year old. What is to Pilsudski a hero who actually was a participant in the 1863 uprising, and and for Pilsudski this was very important. And he actually sat down um, and talked to him at length. He ended up tutoring this person's children in Latin, for example. Um, and he spent a lot of time and he was very influenced. But then he met someone in, in his mid-30s who had been in exile there since uh, for 12 years. And that was a person named Stanisław Landy, who had been one of the founders of the first Polish Socialist Party in 1878. And that party was dissolved and its members were sent into Siberian exile. And, and it just happened to be that Stanislav, Stanislav Landy was a, a Pole of Jewish background. So Pilsudski had this interesting uh, uh, exchange uh, and became friends with a person whom, who uh, uh, um, invited Pilsudski to his home and Landy and his wife entertained uh, and hosted Pilsudski a lot during Siberian exile. It turned out that Stanislav Landy's uncle had perished in the uprising. Um, and I make the claim that that had an impact on Pilsudski's understanding of who the Jews were, which is that there he was and he's learning about a Jew who put his life on the line and gave his life for Poland in 1863. And so it must be a lie when he hears that Jews are disloyal and have no feeling of attachment to Poland. When you have Landy, who's been for 12 years in exile because he's a member, a founder of the Polish Socialists, first Polish Socialists, and then an uncle who died uh, fighting for Poland. Okay, so Pilsudski also then falls in love and uh, moves in with uh, another Polish, another exile, um, and she's Jewish. So this is, I did not, it's fine information that she was Jewish, but we're speaking about uh, Leonarda Lewandowska. So that's the other thing about, if we're thinking about Siberian exile, he experienced his first love in Siberian exile. At 19, he meets uh, a, a fellow Polish exile, Leonarda Lewandowska. They do fall in love and he, they do move in together. You're right. And um, she, um, eight months after they meet, then her service uh, comes to an end, or sorry, her um, her time in exile. And she is forced to return. Um, and there's um, a huge amount of letters that Pilsudski wrote to her while she was back in Western Russia. And we have those letters preserved because she saved all of them. And those were published in 1992. So I use, I use um, that. And one of the things that one of the letters I bring out is she's asking kind of like, you know, how are you feeling? This is because he's been like his fourth year in exile. And he makes this statement about himself that I bring out that I think is, um, you know, has some significance. And he says, he says, and I'm just quoting from his letter from 1891. He was 23 years old. He's in Siberian exile. He says, he says, the thing is my love 
that this same mental state, he says he's very down and rather depressed, um, leaves me with the faith in my ability and connected to this, a belief that an uncommon destiny awaits me. This faith is very deeply felt, that there's something about him. He has an uncommon destiny awaiting him. He, he, feels, that, he feels that destiny even when he's depressed. That's right, because he starts with saying he's, he is down. He says, uh, uh, you know, basically he says, I, I, he, uses, he says, I would not say I'm feeling super great, but because um, he talks about he still has another year of exile. He doesn't know what awaits him when he gets back. He's also aware that when he gets back, they will not allow him to enter university for another five years. So if you think of what the, the cruelty of the Russian uh, system is that they took a 19-year-old, they banished him for five years, only for personal acquaintance with someone, even though they admitted he had no part in the conspiracy. He comes back at the age of 24, and they say, for the next five years, you may not enter any university. So think of what that, what that, that the crushing sense of, of what that does to a young person. And so profoundly stupid and, and, and counterprodu- counterproductive. But let's, uh, he returns at 23, 24, and this high school socialist, by the time he's 30, will be head of the principal socialist party in Poland. And even more importantly, editor of the secret underground newspaper. Now, I, I have to set this up. If you look at pictures of him, the pictures that we'll have on, on the, with the show notes for this, he looks like a character out of the 17th century. Uh, he looks like a hero from Sienkiewicz um, with his you know, enormous world historical mustache, uh, his eyebrows that are features of the landscape, you know, his cropped hair. You know, riding a horse. But while his mustache is no less impressive when he's 30, he spends half of his life as a sort of itinerant socialist journalist. I, I try to count up. Most of his life he spent as an underground scribbler. So we should briefly talk about this. This is a very important phase of his life. But how does he arise to such eminence? Let's take this up to 1905. Okay, so uh, in other words, please. Yeah. So how does this happen? That he becomes, in other words, a, an underground activist and a journalist yeah. writing. So um, he actually states in one of his letters during Siberian Exile to his girlfriend, he does say that he is foreseeing a literary career for himself. And he's very excited about that, that um, he understands he can't return to the university and so what, what excites him is, is journalism, right? And, and he meets some people he can talk to about that. So he foresees that he has like what he calls a literary career in writing, and it, it takes the form of journalism. Now, when he returns in 1892, because he has no path to return to the university, uh, options are given to him by his family. Uh, and one is law. Uh, for example, he, his oldest sister... Um, when he returns, he, in five years, a lot had changed. His oldest sister had gotten married, and she already had two children. And I try to describe this extraordinary encounter the moment he knocks on the door of his older sister, who is his most closest uh, sibling, um, and sees she opens the door and sees two, a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and he's stunned. Like, 
and both of them kind of embrace and she she breaks into tears it's a very emotional moment you know meet your uncle wow who's who they've never seen in their life uh but one thing is that the sisters uh her his brother-in-law is an attorney uh and uh and offers Pilsutsky um a kind of job in the in the legal firm and he starts considering this uh, um uh but but slowly he comes into contact in Vilna with uh, a, uh, a group of Polish socialists, and he starts engaging in these reading groups. And uh, the, the turning point seems to be uh, in 1893 uh, when a member of a party that had just been formed in Paris called the Polish Socialist Party, uh, it formed in exile, uh, uh, illegally went into Russia. His name was Stanisław Mendelssohn. I make the point that because he was a Polish Jew, it is another factor in his kind of understanding. And he meets with Pilsudski and convinces Pilsudski to become head of the local chapter, to join the Polish Socialist Party in Imperial Russia and to head the, quote, Lithuanian section. Then Mendelssohn makes his way on to places like Minsk and, and, and Pinsk and Grodno, and then he goes to Warsaw and to Łódź and places like this, Lublin, and he starts establishing, establishing cells of the Polish Socialist Party. Pilsudski quickly moves up the leadership ladder and becomes the acknowledged head of the Polish Socialist Party in Imperial Russia, while in London, the, the so-called uh, Union of Polish Socialists Abroad remains. So he's got this connection. There's a, a London committee um, that can transfer, uh, um, smuggle in illegal uh, literature, uh, and um, and and also advocate for the Polish um, cause and raise money, and then also uh, ask Pilsudski to write articles for their periodical that's published in London and then smuggled into Imperial Russia. It's called Pszedzfit in Polish, which means dawn, right? a common social name for a socialist paper. And Pilsudski starts writing these columns from Vilna, which is essentially, you know, uh, always has a date. It says Vilno and then a date. Uh, and he always uses a pseudonym. Um, and some attribute a lot to a pseudonym, which was R-O-M for romantic. <laughs> As you would say, he was a rote, but that was his pseudonym for much of those years. And he would write these columns for, from Vilno. What's going on in Vilna? What's going on with the workers' movement, with strikes? Uh, what's the position of local uh, administrators? Um, he would rail against the governor of the Vilna province, rail against the uh, authoritarian um, state, and, and speak about both ethnic diversity, Lithuanians, Jews, Poles, and also the democratic ideal. Uh, and so those columns became important. One of those columns was entirely devoted to the Jews, and it's a very kind of friendly, kind of pro-Jewish article about the, about the opportunity the Polish Socialist Party has with the Jewish workers in the various Lithuanian cities, Vilna in particular. That and he f understands they're the largest section of Vilna, and if we can incorporate them into our party, this would be great for our party. Um, and it's around that time, um, a little bit later, that the Jewish Labor Bund is founded in the same city of Vilna, and Pilsudski is 
is actually rubbing shoulders with the leaders of the Bund, uh, initially very friendly because he thinks he can convince them to become part, uh, become the Jewish section of the Polish Socialist Party. It's the beginning of of his understanding that that's not realization that that uh, there's a, a a lot of resistance to that. First, the Bund is um, they're they're Russian speaking socialists mm-hmm. of Jewish background who are uh, coming from Russian universities. They're they have very little knowledge about Polish affairs, and therefore the transformation um, of Russia into a federal democratic republic. But they're not in favor of carving out borders for Poland. Uh, at the, and then the Lithuanian Socialist Party also is founded in, in Vilna a little bit later, 1896, 1897. He also initially thinks he can incorporate them, and neither parties agree to become part of the Polish Socialist Party. So they, ex- they coexist, Lithuanian Socialists, Jewish Socialists, and that becomes his struggle throughout the pre-World War One period, which is... And really, really up to like through 1920 in uh, some ways, isn't oh, it? Absolutely. I mean, because because it, what's really kind of interesting about Pilsudski, first of all, he's a socialist. He's also a nationalist, uh, which, you know, I think people projecting backwards say socialists aren't nationalists, but this is, Pilsudski is certainly, uh, Pilsudski shows this is ridiculous. Uh, he could be a socialist and a nationalist. But at the same time, he's a Polish nationalist while also a federalist, who wants a he wants something I think he has a dream of something approximating the the 17th century the 16th century and the 17th century commonwealth some sort of a union of prior to god he goes all the way back to before himelnitsky's revolt he would like a sort of federalist of jews and ukrainians and lithuanians and estonians maybe even and you know latvia and poles all together in some sort of federal socialist republic that is not russia he could does not give a damn about what happens to russia that's not that's not his problem it it is the his conundrum, which is his belief that uh, the the territories um, east of the Russian ethnic frontier, essentially the the boundaries of 1772 on the eve of the first partition of Poland, uh, that those should be restored, uh, the, 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 that Russians should be repelled from those regions, and state Russian state authorities um, should be pushed back to make way for the free national development of that region. He had not formulated whether that would be a single union of Poland, Lithuania, and Ukraine, or it'd be three separate sovereign states. Um, But he did believe that the heritage of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth should be restored and that that, um, he wanted to redress what he believed was the profound injustice of the partitions of the 18th century so it really is, first of all, uh, a struggle against Russia, but clearly right below that surface is to restore sovereignty to the Austrian region and the, the German people. Um, and, um, you know, so, and, and he is trying to reach out in a friendly way to Ukrainians, Lithuanians, Jews, but they soon start regarding it as a kind of Polish imperialist um, venture. And he's saying we're not interested in conquest. It's that unless we unify, we will not be able to have any defensible borders or to defend ourselves against Russia. So that's his concern. If you have several small sovereign states, you'll be vulnerable to the aggression 
from the West and the East. Um, so there's something so, to that. Yeah. So eventually, uh, despite the best trade craft living, you know, uh, never living in one place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He eventually gets nabbed. Uh, there is a thrilling escape. Uh, the way that the czarist hierarchy is riddled with spies and sympathizers is quite extraordinary. He escapes from St. Petersburg, the psychiatric institute, St. Petersburg, which is fantastic and yeah. takes refuge in basically Austrian controlled section of Poland, right? That's he's in Krakow. But I want, I want to get to 1905 because in 1905, his focus changes and he starts to become the Pilsudski that he will, in some ways, he becomes the proto Marshal Pilsudski. He'll be Marshal Pilsudski eventually, mm -hmm. but this is the beginning of his turn towards the military life. It's important to emphasize he's never been in the army, never had any military education, but in 1905, he becomes focused on the armed struggle. Yeah. Why? So How? it's uh, something that I discovered, which is that, the um, period from the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 up to World War I, you see this, this gradual shift in his emphasis from popular uprising, which was kind of the, you know, the 1863 insurrectionary ideal, romantic, mm -hmm. to the idea that only an armed force can expel the Russian army from Polish lands. The uprisings of the 19th century, he recognized, even though there was great emotional value to, to that and there was heroism, they utterly failed, right? Uh, Poland was not restored. Thousands upon thousands of Poles were arrested, executed, sent into exile, uh, uh, and any small autonomous uh, concessions that they had 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 been destroyed. So his view was that popular uprising is no, no longer can be the main method. And it has to be the, the development of a Polish armed force that at one point could, with the help of other great powers, uh, engage Russian forces and finally expel them from Polish lands. And so I just want to say where this comes from, which is that, of course, uh, he was this romantic insurrectionary before that, before 1904. But what we know is that in 1904, he visits Tokyo as a leader of the Polish Socialist Party and, and actually has meetings with um, Japanese generals and members of the government because his party wants to propose to them that, the, that if they give them kind of aid, military aid in the terms of funds so they could, they could funnel into, um, uh, into Imperial Russia uh, arms and ammunition, that that because Japanese was at war with Russia, Poles would become a kind of, um, behind enemy lines, they could rise up against the Russians at the moment of Japanese victory, uh, and they would, they would be a kind of ally with the, the Japanese. Now, the proposal failed because who else happened to be in Tokyo at the same time? Roman Domofsky member of the Polish uh, uh, National Democratic Party, who is what we call like an, an accommodationist. He wasn't pro-Russian, but he believed that for the time being, uh, insurrection should, should, should not be uh, the, the main instrument of achieving uh, Polish goals, 
or joining the war with Japan, but in fact um, working with Tsarist Russia uh, to get an accommodation for some kind of internal autonomy uh, against Russia. But but by that time, Domovsky and his party believed um, that insurrection was uh, uh, would just be damaging, um, and they were absolutely opposed to Pilsudski. So in the end, the Japanese um, refused to uh, agree to this um, kind of military cooperation, but they did agree to give some funding um, to the London um, chapter of the Polish Socialist Party to help them um, um, with more arms for for insurrection inside. But it is said that as he went, traveled to Japan, and by the way, in the travels to Japan, he he went along the Atlantic, arrived in New York City, and the only 10 days in his life he was ever in the United States, he took a train from New York to San Francisco. He spent two days in Manhattan, then this train across the country, and from San Francisco, they boarded a vessel to Tokyo. Uh, but there is actually firsthand uh, um, testimony about what he saw in that trip, um, but that's the only 10 days. But what is said is that when he returned from Tokyo uh, in 1904, um, it's, it's believed that his entire understanding of the Polish issue changed, and that now he realized that it's the military and military solution alone that will achieve Polish goals, not an insurrection. And so it's not a coincidence that something like I, I document this, that he returns in October 1904. Uh, so he'd, he'd left in the summer of 1904 to Japan. He returns in October uh, uh, to Poland. And there he organizes the first combat division of the Polish Socialist Party in, um, in October. And then in November, the first armed action of the Polish Socialist Party takes place in Warsaw, where there's a Russian gendarme, and they have hidden weapons, and they rise up, and they, and they actually engage in battle with Russian um, police and gendarme. Some are killed, some are arrested, and it, is, it took place in Grzebowski Square in Warsaw. Today it's considered, um, I shouldn't say today, at the time, and I actually document this because I, I, um, I cite an article from the London Times and also from the New York Times, calling it the first Polish armed action against Russia since 1863. And I thought that was important. That, and that was all Pilsudski. It was his planning, his, right? And from that moment on, he said, uh, and I document this, that from this moment on, the principal goal is the formation of the nucleus of a Polish armed force that will engage Russia uh, and expel it from Polish lands. But he now understood that the only context in which that would be successful is a war between Russia and the other two partitioning powers. Um, and that was the main breakthrough in his understanding. So, so when war breaks out in 1914, this for him is the opportunity. This is, the, this is it. This is the moment. So he, and he has the advantage of being in exile in Austrian Poland the Austrians want to screw over the Russians, and so they allow him to basically create a shadow army through the process of the Rifleman Associations 
They're rifle clubs. Yeah. They're just people learning how to shoot. But they're actually company formations, which will be part of the Polish the Polish Legion, the Polish Army. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary because he cre- he um, forms uh, the Union of Armed Struggle in, in 1908. Uh, and then by 1910, they they rename that the Riflemen's Association. It's And they have chapters in Krakow, Krakow and Lvov, and they actually do military exercises. And the fact that they now have formal relations with the Austro-Hungarian Army, uh, and I cite in there some very stark complaints by the Russian ambassador to Austria saying, you know, this guy, Pilsudski, and he actually in one of his documents, he says, I can't believe he got out of that prison, uh, got out of that uh, psychiatric um, hospital in <laughs> St. Petersburg and escaped. That was he's his worst mistake ever for Russia. Yeah. But now he's this he's this troublemaker of forming an army. Uh, and he wanted the Austrians to dissolve that and arrest Pilsudski, saying, "You can't, you know, you're you're allowing an anti-Russian military force to form inside your country, and we find that an act uh, of hostility." But the, and the Austrians um, absolutely refused to act on that. They said he, yeah. he's allowed. He's we we know him. Um, he's complied with all our regulations. And we really can use the support. And we can use the support. Yeah. So there's actually a very profound uh, um, um, passage from his wife's memoirs, uh, um, who's Alexandra Pilsudska, in which she remembers with the Riflemen's Association the moment in, it was in Lvov, in which Pilsudski stood at the head of one of these formations in an exercise and she just talks about the symbolism of that moment because he was in military. They allowed the, the, the riflemen to wear Polish uniform, like um, a, a different cap, a different uniform, some symbol of the white eagle. And, and she just talked about that moment when she's observed uh, the man that would become her, her husband later, but that this was the culmination of his dream, that he would stand at the head of an armed force that would one day liberate Poland. And, and it actually did. <laughs> liberate and, Poland, and he's doing this. And this is uh, this is the. There's a lot of cinematic areas to this, but one he's doing this by robbing post offices and post office trains and banks. And this is how he supports the armed struggle: is by knocking off cash boxes and, and blowing open safes. So one of the things that Pilsudski does, as you're right, is he uh, he leads what are called uh, requisite. No, no, what's the term? Is um, expropriation uh, actions against the Russians. And what these are, these, these underground uh, cells of the Polish Socialist Party, uh, which by 1908 had, had split into a revolution, uh, revolutionary faction um, and, um, and, the, and a, le- a kind of Polish Socialist Party right. That was what Pilsudski now presided over. And then a Polish Socialist Party left. The difference is the left said, we're going to, we're going to uh, suspend for the time being the demand for Polish independence while we work to overthrow the kind of Russian autocratic regime. And Pilsudski's faction said, no, we have to maintain that. So he had a, a slightly, you know, now it was in a smaller a section of it. Um, but the expropriation bans was to take uh, uh, um, tax money from the Polish regions that was being delivered by trains from Polish provinces in, in to St. Petersburg, and what they would do is they is like you're saying they were um, 
they were bandits, right? They would they would stand at railroad stations, and when the they knew exactly from from their intelligence uh, the contents of the trains when they would arrive, and they they would seize the train. Uh, sometimes they had to engage in battle with uh, Russian, um, uh, you know, police and guards, and they would seize uh, essentially like large assets of cash and gold and so forth. And in 1908 was the single largest one of those uh, in a town that would, it required um, lots of preparation. Pilsudski personally was involved. He blew the safe himself, I believe. Yes, he blew up the safe himself. And I, I, I write in here, the, I forgot the, 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 the dollar figure. I try, to, I try to do how much, but it was, it was in the hundreds of thousands of, of U.S. dollars, actually, at the time, which is extraordinary. And, um, and there he didn't know if he would actually make it. And so he actually, um, very dramatically, he wrote uh, to what at that time was his closest colleague, uh, Jose, uh, who was Felix Pearl, and said, if I don't make it, I would like you to give my eulogy. Before we move on, briefly, uh, I, I, one thing I, I have a hard time getting my finger on is how eventually Pilsudski is not a socialist. Uh, but so, and his uh, obvious, and, and socialism seems to me by this stage, largely instrumental as in it's, he, it's the, it's the most organized party that will lead an armed struggle against Russia. I think you're absolutely right that as we get to, from 1908 to 1914, especially those last, those waning years in, in Krakow and Austria-Hungary, uh, 1912, 1913, for him, the military becomes the essence. And we, part of why we know this is because um, to earn income, um, he, uh, he gave lectures and, and published at this time. Uh, and when he was asked, what, what is he? Um, um, we know from, mem- from actually testimonies of people who met him, when they ask, you know, what, you know, what do you do? He, would, he had the same response. I'm a journalist. And I found that interesting. I'm a journalist and I write for this newspaper because that's how he earned his income is through these publications. He thought that he thought that was important. And we should note that in, for example, at this time, 1910 uh, um, to 1914, he gave um, lecture series on different topics. But the, the most prominent was was literally a 10-part lecture series uh, in 1913 on the 50th anniversary of the 1863 uprising. And what I find important about that is that the lectures were then put into a book and published at that time with his real name. And it's, you know, it's, it's the first time he started to use his real name. He, he would, up to that time, use pseudonyms. And the other thing he did is he wrote a 220-page uh, book, and it was a the outcome of something like 40 serialized articles in a daily newspaper, Polish newspaper in Krakow, on the history of uh, it was it was on the secret press of the Polish Socialist Party, and it was basically a history of how they were able to funnel in an illegal printing press in 1894, how they were able to print uninterrupted monthly issues of Robotnik, which was the central organ, it means the worker, um, under the nose of the Russians for six straight years until the printing press was discovered in 1900 and he was arrested. So he goes into the whole history, but I find it interesting, it's 220 
printed pages and published as a separate book. Uh, so he's doing a lot of this activity. And the other thing is his, his absolute fascination with Napoleon. And he believes that Napoleon is the guide for him. So then the war comes. And what's amazing to me is that he does the equivalent of saying, I would like to have three desserts and not gain any weight. I would like to have, you know, uh, I would like to be physically strong and never lift weights. Because, he says, we're going to join up with Germany, we'll fight with Austria against Russia, but we support all the West, we support France and England. Uh, we're not going to fight against them. It's absolutely preposterous. But it works out. Somehow, he does it. Right. This is just extraordinary that he, uh, one of the things I try to argue is that he had um, an extraordinary uh, intellect in which he could amass materials and reduce it down to their essence. So he had a strong analytical skill. And he had a skill at diplomacy in which he could, he could define an overall goal, and that's the independence of Poland. And he could view the coming war uh, by literally a full analysis of all the military formations and what would be the most possible outcome and how that would, would affect Poland. So he had come up with this idea that he will, he will ally with Austria and Germany to expel the Russians from Polish lands. And this happens in 1915. Mm -hmm. But then he actually explicitly said at that point, then his alliance with Germany and Austria will have to shift because now he will be struggling for an independent Poland. And so that his wish after the defeat of Russia will be that the Western democracies with the United States will defeat the central powers and then bring about the independence of Poland. Because he, he's 100% sure that the Germans and the Austrians will not give one inch of land for a Poland, right? So he understands that they, they, they may, you know, they may um, allow some Polish entity inside areas of Russia that are conquered, but he's sure they will not allow any German or Austrian lands to be incorporated. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's very clear that that Russia is the enemy, but once Russia falls, then that will shift, and now Germany and Austria will be, become the foe of independent Poland. And it's, he actually speaks about this right on the eve of World War I, mm -hmm. uh, and, and part of, let's say, the, the, the troubled legacy of Pilsudski is that his opponents claim that those are all lies, that he never actually said that, that when, when people write about it, it's from... It, the sources they use are not reliable, that it's from, it's from memoirs of people who wrote after Pisitsky died, much later. And so, but, but I've found that that's not true because there were newspaper articles right on the eve of World War I that interviewed him. So they couldn't be false because they're, they're real-time interviews in which he's actually saying this. Ally with the Central Powers, defeat Russia – and then his hope is that then the central powers will be defeated by the Western democracies. Mm -hmm. So somehow he foresaw this, but it's very tricky. And that, that is why in 1917, he's arrested <laughs> and imprisoned by the Germans. Which is a fantastic move to be imprisoned yeah. at that moment. It's the best thing that could have, because he's already resigned from the Austro-Hungarian army. I mean, 
for one thing, it, it's it's a miracle enough the Austro-Hungarians stayed on their feet long enough because uh, if they had been, if the Russians almost defeat them uh, a couple times, right? And uh, but then he resigns, and then he gets he has the great good fortune to be imprisoned in Magdeburg, so he is a victim of German imperialism, and. Mm-hmm. He's out of the politics. He's not contaminated by anything that happens. He's 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 locked up. Yeah. It's fantastic. It, it, it is just an unbelievable, I think, just an extraordinary story. Um, I, I wanted just to say that as World War One began, and I, I want to get to the imprisonment. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to say that that um, already by let's say December 1914, Pilsudski has a legendary yeah. uh, a, a, um, kind of. Um, cloud around him or like you know an allure and 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 how do we know this is because when the polish legions are formed he becomes head of the first brigade of the polish legions and it's this legendary brigade because it's multinational 10 percent of it is jewish he has jewish soldiers some ukrainian soldiers and it's the vision of poland that's this pluralistic democratic state but he comes across as already as a kind of leader. So I wanted to give you this, this example. In December uh, 1914, he's in Vienna at a kind of dinner um, honoring the Polish legions, and there's a right-wing Polish journalist from Krakow uh, who, who jots down a diary entry. He's reporting on it. And this is what he says in... So he's not a, a, um, he's not a proponent of Pilsudski. He's actually a foe. He's for the the right wing. And, he, and this is the quote from his diary, and this is December 24th, 1914. Quote, today, all are of the opinion that, at the very least, Pilsudski has the making of a historical figure. Sharing the fate of the legions, he is their personification, their symbol. <laughs> so that's what, that, what this journalist, Rudard Staszewski, uh, I'm sorry, Staszewski wrote in his um, journal. So it gives you a sense of how he was already perceived as a kind of personification of the, let's say, aspirations of the Polish people. Or, um, but, but even more so, like you said, when he's imprisoned by the Germans, the, the contemporaneous press says there couldn't have been a better outcome for Pilsudski. Why? Because he's the, he is now noted as the symbol of Poland. He would re, he, remember, it's called the Oath Crisis. He refused to swear an oath of loyalty to the Kaiser, he said, I can only swear a lo- lo- uh, an oath of loyalty to Poland. And they arrested him because he was head of the legions. And they said, without that oath of, of loyalty to us, um, hmm. you'll be arrested. So he says, so arrest you'll have me. to arrest me. Yeah. So for, for the next 16 months, he languishes in this military prison in Magdeburg. Uh, and, you know, the New York Times, the, the, the Times of London... San Francisco, they report on this. And what you realize in, in the contemporaneous press is that it's the first time his name appears in like the New York Times or mm-hmm. the, the Times of London. Before that, they spoke about this in general and why it's because he was in prison. And, they, and they're saying now he is the symbol of Poland because he is the only leader who refused to compromise his principles. Um, and diminish the the chances of Poland for an independent state by you know making concessions, uh, and so it could be the reason why when he emerges from that prison, 
uh, at the end of World War One, he he really is kind of acknowledged. And I I love the anecdote I began with because it's like Lenin and his sealed train. Only Pils- oh, yeah. only Pilsudski is just taking. Uh, does he I, does he buy have to buy his own <laughs> ticket? But I mean, they just they shove him on the train to Warsaw. I can imagine him like buying a a sausage roll or like a cup of coffee. <laughs> uh, he's just yeah. he's just in the compartment. He doesn't. He's going to Warsaw, and he gets off, and he finds there's the. Is it the governor general? Anyway, it's the it's the Polish representative to the German government's waiting for him. The carriage is away, and then people start to congregate. They start to mob the carriage. They realize it's yes. him. I mean, he's unmistakable, yeah. I mean, as you'll see from taking looking at a picture of him. I mean, he's the easiest person probably in world history, other than Hitler, to caricature. Um, uh, but it, it is an extraordinarily dramatic moment yeah. that um, that people kind of slowly get this news that on November eighth, nineteen eighteen, he. And his chief of staff, who's Sosenkowski, uh, are released from the prison, which is huge news in Poland. But they're not exactly sure when he's going to arrive. He arrives on the morning of November 10th. Uh, and there are crowds. It, it spreads like wildfire that Pilsudski's arrived. And so, as you said, there's these scenes where, where people are coming out in the streets to see, get a glimpse of this kind of national hero. Uh, and the then uh, authorities were what was called the Regency Council, yeah. and that was a German-appointed three-man uh, governmental, you know, a, a top three governmental with, uh, officials. With no less a name than Prince Lubomirski, I think is the. I mean, it's, yes. I mean, it's like yeah. one of the most blue-blooded of all the blue-blooded <laughs> Polish families, you know. But, That's exactly it. But, absolute famous landed nobility. Yeah. But they're like they're shaded into insignificance between. A guy who just a few years ago was just an underground socialist scribbler, and is now marshal of Poland. Suddenly, you know, it, it, it is just extraordinary because he he emerges uh, and he's greeted at this train station by Prince Lubomirski, who's the head of that council. Who then, you know, uh, um, is very emotional by all accounts of because there are other people standing on the platform. He, he's tearing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, as the train is coming, they know it's supposed to arrive at about 7 a.m. Uh, um, one of the persons standing next to Prince Lubomirsky wrote in a diary that as, you know, that like 10 to 12 minutes before he was, uh, he was, he was um, kind of saying under his breath, please, God, please, God, let him come. Please, God. That, that barely, that's what he was uttering. And he wouldn't stop that. And then it appeared and then tears welled up in his eyes. And Pilsudski emerges from this train. And then Prince Lubomirsky invites him into uh, a, a kind of government uh, chauffeured automobile that then is driven to his, his home. But then as people um, get news that he, he's arrived, they're lining the streets. And you're right. They, the, the, the car goes into areas where they can't get around the crowds and, um, and they finally get to Prince Lubomirsky's um, residence. And that's when he, he offers him the position of commander in chief of the armed forces. Um, but I want r- uh, listeners to know one thing about this, uh, that uh, Pilsudski was the father of an eight month old daughter. Right. It's his first child. He never saw the daughter because the birth took place while he was in prison in Germany. And so he, he's full. I mean, this moment has such 
uh, resonance, and it's so profound, not only for the nation, because one, he's stepping foot on independent Polish soil for the first time in his life. Mm-hmm. He's 50 years old. He knows he desperately wants to see his newborn daughter. Well, I shouldn't say newborn, eight month. It, it has been the dream of his life to have children. And he's, he's navigating this field of crowds of people, official meetings, Finally, he gets to this residence that's been designated for him, and he's trying to find a way out of the back so he can get um, some kind of transport to where his um, the mother of his children. Why is he not married to her? Because his first wife, who lives in Krakow, uh, will not give him a divorce. They've been separated for years, and so it has to be kind of kept a little bit quiet. It's a real soap and opera. So, this part of the part of the yeah. one of the secrets of the book, you know, is all this secret run. Right. Yeah. That is, a, and so he's able that that day, that later that day, to to sneak out and get to the residence of his mistress and his eight month old daughter and see. His, and so uh, readers, you know, may be interested that 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 the woman who becomes his second wife writes a full memoir in which she describes exactly that moment mm. wh- where the door opened and he saw for the first time his daughter and and embraced the daughter and held her in his arms and just that moment of significance and, and uh, emotion. Got a great picture, incredible, great picture in the show notes of, of the two of them when she's a, I think a, a teenager uh, when in the last year of his life, uh, you can look at the show notes and see that. It's a, they obviously, they have a very, they have a, a, a love. You can see, I mean, pictures lie, but this seems to, they have a lot, they have, it supports the idea they have a truly loving relationship. He think, he obviously thought she, that, she was the world. That's right. She yeah. was the world. Um, so we've talked a, a lot about some of his incredible achievements, uh, basically crushing the Red Army at the, in the miracle in the Vistula. Uh, Vistula. We don't have yeah. time to talk about that. Um, he mm-hmm. sets up the rule of law. He sets up a government, uh, and he resigns. He does a Cincinnati Act. Uh, he does he does a George Washington, um, but then comes the second. The, uh, one thing I wanted to ask is it, one of the Jewish visitors in, I think, 1920, you quote, says that Pilsudski was seemed to be surprised at the existence of the whole Jewish question, which seems to me like a compl- that Pilsudski must have been concealed. The fact that that he said that is very really odd to me because, um, you know, I'm sorry, can you repeat what he said? Yeah, he said that, that Pilsudski seems to be that Pilsudski, when he visited him, seemed to be completely unfamiliar with the Jewish question. Yes. Okay. But that yes. Is, that, was that, so, that can't yeah, yeah. possibly be true. That's I mean, Pelsinski yeah. is very good at listening, I guess, um, and asking questions because we know from everything that's gone on in his life, this is not true. So that's one question I have for you about that. And the second is um, the whole intermarium and how that like burst into pieces almost on contact. Uh, his whole plan for this federation of republics that would stretch from the the, the Baltic to the Black Sea. So if we could briefly touch mm-hmm. on those two things, because they're very relevant sure. to what goes on now and to what happened afterwards. That's, absolutely. So um, re- regarding just that his uh, presiding over the state, I, I only want to just say that that to me, one of the important legacies of Pilsudski is that in an in a time in the interwar that saw the rise of Lenin, Stalin, Mussolini, and Hitler, which is the rise of, yeah. of, an, of an one-party dictator. An, an, I'm sorry, an, an, an editor. An yeah. editor, who's in many ways almost like his brother, 
in a lot of ways and creating a national, ah. you know, t- uh, creating a national repu- nationalist republic out of the wreckage of an empire. Um, they would have had a lot to talk about. That's, but that's absolutely right that he is. I, uh, and I know that sometimes he's compared to other European dictators, but I only want mm-hmm. to just um, emphasize that uh, like a, a Lenin and Stalin, they come to power on the heels of the provisional government. So kind of the, the, the first democratic government of Russia, um, Mussolini um, enters government, uh, an, an, a democratic Italy in 1922 as prime minister. Uh, Hitler comes to power as chancellor of a democratic Germany. Mm-hmm. And all of those figures I mentioned then work to topple that yeah, democracy yeah. and they replace it with a dictatorship. And I just want listeners to know that Pilsudski with full power in his hands uh, in November 1918, when he was named head of state and commander in chief, he worked in an entirely transparent way to form democratic institutions. So he named a provisional government. He immediately passed an electoral law. That's that's less than a month after independence, which gave women the right to vote. The fourth country in in the world, or excuse me, in the Western world mm-hmm. at the time, and uh, free and fair elections did take place in January 1919. Um, nobody disputes that. The first freely elected assembly um, uh, or parliament, um, you know, um, met on February 20th, 1919. He opens the parliament. And the first thing he did is to hand over power to the parliament and said, now I am no longer head of state mm. because in a democracy, the people choose the head of state. And in this case, the freely elected parliament. So he walks out of the room uh, and the parliament then takes a vote and they unanimously vote to reinstate him as head of state. But he did follow through with his promise that he, he was head of state and he said not by uh, vote, not by election. So in a sense, he wasn't fully legitimate. Uh, so he followed through with those democratic uh, milestones. And then that freely elected parliament drafted a constitution in March 1921 mm-hmm. um, now, it's a constitution he had a lot of issues with, but he didn't believe it was his place to tamper with or to dispute, and he respected those, even though he believed that uh, there were aspects that should be reformed. And so one can say that in the first three years of his rule, he presided over the transition to a true democratic, constitutional, pluralistic state. It's the opposite of what we see in the European dictators who entered those already existing democratic states and toppled him. He was the creator of. So, so that's why when, if, we, if we're able to get to the coup of 1926, mm. I have a little bit of a different take on it in the sense that uh, I'll say that he didn't, um, he didn't institute the coup to topple the democratic but state. Let's just put, let's put a pin in that and, go, and let's talk about quickly yeah. the sort of the, yes. the two, the, two the, the Jewish question and the and the failure of the federalism, the federalist vision. The federalist. Thank you very much. Those are two central issues. So, at the very foundation of the of the state, um, within the first nineteen days of Polish sovereignty, November eleven to November 30, 1918, pogroms broke out in Poland. Now, administered in the areas administered by by Poland, within those nineteen days, um, Pilsudski held two meetings with representatives of the Jewish community of Poland. Uh, and these are the senior leadership members. Um, and, uh, and I emphasize that um, 
it probably was not even a uh, possibility before World War One that the then authorities of Poland, the regional, would have met with Jews or met with they. They that was not their concern. The Pilsudski sat. He invited them. He listened. He received materials from them. They all they provided reports on the pogroms. Mm-hmm. They issued what they believe would be essential things uh, for stopping the pogroms. Uh, and those meetings are documented because there were journalists in the room. So we have reports the day after mm-hmm. in the various newspapers and uh, um, in within months. Uh, the J- Jewish community put out a kind of report on those me- that included the transcripts of those meetings. So one of the things that that to me was really surprising is that they demanded that he give a public statement condemning the pogroms, and he refused. And it really kind of it's this moment that I still ponder because his answer to it was really odd, which is which is that I am not authorized to make a statement because I'm not democratically elected. So that, so he says, when the parliament is formed in January, 1919, and there's a, there's a elected parliament and then an elected head of state, he's like, if I'm that head of state that they choose, I will make a statement to the nation. Now to the Jews, this was like a cynical betrayal. Like, so you're going to, while Jews are being victimized by by violence in various parts of Poland, you're going to hold off a public condemnation for three months. Um, it didn't make sense to them. But what he said is that privately, he will uh, make inquiries in the armed forces and that he will order the heads of every province to issue decrees to soldiers that this is illegal, that any pogromists will be brought to justice, and, and that we will... We will uh, bring a halt to these. So this is what he said in private. He will work to end it, but in public he will not condemn it. I think at the time, and I have I quote Jewish leaders, you know, re- referring to this in a very critical way. Um, but I can also say that when he was asked by journalists um, about this, his response was 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 a nuanced one in which he said. That you know, most Jews behave are behaving honorably, but he's noting, and 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 listeners should understand, this is not a we're not talking about peacetime. Poland for the next two years is at war with all its neighbors to establish boundaries. So it's right now at war in Ukraine, fighting for take Lviv. It's at war with Lithuania because they're fighting over Vilna. It's at war with the Red Army, Bolshevik Russia because they want to take Eastern Poland. It's at, it's fighting with Czechoslovakia for a small area called Cheshen, and it's fighting Germany to take uh, West Pomerania uh, and parts of Prussia. So they literally have five military fronts. So I just want readers to understand, it's not just peacetime and suddenly pogroms break out. These are the outcome of battles where cities are newly occupied, and the accusation was that the Jews sided with the enemy. Um, And and one of the things that that comes out is that, for example, in Kielce, there is a pogrom, and it's clear from the reports that the reason that the the violence was committed, the claim is that Jews are Bolsheviks. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. They weren't really 
making the claim. Uh, the, the, the issue there is that Kielce wasn't near the front. So this was one of those programs that wasn't related to that. Mm-hmm. They were making a claim that Jews and Bolsheviks are the same thing. Who are our enemies? The Bolsheviks. So you had that. And so that's one of his, maybe say, the mixed legacy is that. But what we can say is that when the borders were established by 1921 and there were there was peace with its neighbors, meaning the end of hostilities, in Pilsudski's Poland between 1921 and then when he died in 1935, no pogroms broke out. Pogroms broke out after he, he died and during this period of the establishment of frontiers. But when there's peacetime, it does seem like it was known that he would not tolerate anti-Jewish excesses. Now, And I do think this is related to your second question, which is that he was trying to establish a kind of federal ties with um, Ukraine and Lithuania at this time. His, his goal was to prop up a Ukraine that would be nominally independent as a buffer between Russia and Poland. So it would have the... the in which it would be kind of, there would be, um, it, it was unclear whether there'd be formal ties with Poland as a kind of federal union, uh, but he did advocate independent Ukraine, which would be an ally. But with Lithuania, he seemed the Jagiellonian ideals clearly was at the forefront of his mind because he demanded that Vilna become part of, in some ways, uh, part of Poland. Um, and he conceded that it could be jointly run by the newly independent Lithuania and Poland, that there could be kind of like a joint parliament and they could jointly administer it. And Lithuania was absolutely adamant that, that Vilnius is the capital of Lithuania. And, and readers and listeners may know that Pilsudski actually took Vilnius in, in April 1919. But on the eve of that occupation, he sent a secret envoy to Kovno, which was then the capital of the functioning, the de facto capital of Lithuania, <clears throat> it was a, <clears throat> a person who was actually what you may call a Lithuanian Pole. He was ethnic Lithuanian, but, but regarded himself nationally as Pole. They sent this right-hand man of Pilsudski to Kovno to try to negotiate a settlement in which there'd be a kind of jointly run Vilna region. And they said, absolutely not. And that's when he realized he had to take it by force. And he went in and he battled the Lithuanians and expelled them. And, and um, listeners may be interested in this, that Lithuania, from that point on, regarded itself in a state of war with Poland. And that state of war remained until Pilsudski died in 1935, mm-hmm. meaning they never recognized Polish sovereignty over Vilnius. And so it was like a thorn in his side, his... His federation plan didn't work. He wanted a kind of union of Poland and Lithuania. But it does seem like Lithuanian national consciousness had exceeded that moment in history. They no longer wanted a union uh, with Poland or to restore it. Yeah, create a very bad taste until, strangely enough, February 25th, 2022. Now the things might have changed a little bit. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that now we're very close ties. Yeah, Yeah, now there are. Vladimir Putin is a is a genius for European unity. Uh, one of the great advocates of oh, European yeah. unity. So uh, let's let's <laughs> let's uh, talk about this this the the Pelsudsky the, the two faces of Pelsudsky, which is really the and without getting into the details of the coup, suffice it to say that he is disappointed with he with the direction of Polish democracy, 
following the assassination of the, his successor as head of state, what, three days, uh, three weeks, five, five days, days yeah, after five days. the guy takes over. Um, and yet that happens in 22. And yet it's, it's not until four years later that Pilsudski then leads a coup in his position as minister of defense, I believe he is in, in that government mm-hmm. or, or general. Um, so what are we to make of this? Just in, in the broadest terms, not getting into any of the de- details, what are we to make of this? Because obviously you're, we don't believe that we, we don't believe that there are two people. He's the same person. So here, as you keep, as you've said very eloquently, here's a man who he's not an out of church. He doesn't stay into power until he dies. He's not. He's not. Uh, he's not one of the democratically elected leader who becomes a dictator. Um, you know, the closest to him, I guess, would be Mannerheim of Finland, who is you know loses uh-huh. an election and accepts it after having led the breakaway Finland breaking away from the Russian Empire. Um, why does he do it? Why does he do it? That's why does right. it take so long to do it? You know, it, it's right. That's a great. I would like since you mentioned. Uh, Mannheim, Mannheim sir, yeah. you know Carl Gustav Mannheim, who was uh, a Finnish military leader and statesman. Uh, it, there, there are some interesting comparisons because Finland was part of Imperial Russia, Poland was part of Imperial Russia, and and um, you know Mannheimer becomes uh, the first kind of you know commander in chief of this breakaway Finland. But here, I would say you know the difference is that. Um, man is that Mannheim in World War One volunteered for the Russian army. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, not in World War One during the Russo-Japanese War of 1904. Yep. So he volunteered for the Russian army and be, and actually became part of the Russian uh, armed forces. Oh yeah. And that in the interwar period he had uh, uh, he held no public office. Right. Uh, and the other difference I would say is that he favored in 19. 19- uh, 19, he favored um, intervention on behalf of the White Army mm-hmm. uh, during the Russian Civil War, and Pilsudski refused to do that. He believed it would be a ideological compromise because they were like pro-Czarist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I say that's the difference, but as a commander-in-chief, uh, first commander-in-chief, there's absolutely um, you know similarities between there of the breakaway mm-hmm. of republics. Now, Going to the to the coup. So first of all, I would emphasize the utter shock that Pilsudski felt when the first president of Poland, uh, Gabriel Narutowicz, five days after he's elected in December 1922, is assassinated by a pole. So there's like the spilling of Polish on Polish blood in the capital is so shocking to him, but also. The, the days leading up to that assassination. Uh, and, and to me, there's overtones with what happened in our 2020 election and the, and the insurrection um, of January 6th. And, and the connection is this. The first presidential elections brought in a liberal, right? And Poland was a multinational state in which polls made up 69% of the population. The right wing... Their candidate lost, free and fair, but what they argued from the day of the election result is that Narutovich is illegitimate. It's fraud. It's a fake election. 
But they, they went further and said that if you just allowed ethnic Poles to vote, mm-hmm. then their, their guy would have won. Mm-hmm. So Narutovich, they called him the president of the Jews. Why? Because Jews overwhelmingly, which formed 10% of the country, but also ethnic Germans overwhelmingly supported him, ethnic Lithuanians, ethnic Ukrainians, because he was for minority rights and pluralism. Um, but what they tried to do is disenfranchise minority votes by going in and saying, and they actually threatened to march on the Capitol as well. And the viciousness of the press campaign uh, so affected this one gentleman, Polish gentleman, that he decided he was going to assassinate Pilsudski. But once, yeah. but then he decided, look, Pilsudski's not the president. For symbolic reasons, he needs to assassinate the president. So at an art exhibit five days after the elections, an opening of an art exhibition in Warsaw at this Academy of Fine Arts, this 50-something kind of deranged individual enters with a pistol uh, and then shoots and kills the president. The importance of this event is not only just that it, the shock of that it happened, but that it followed a five days of the right trying to completely illegitimize the election with false claims of election fraud in, in, in which they were answered at the time. We've looked. It was free and fair. They're international observers. There's no cases in which there's widespread fraud, right? But they kept, they kept like drawing on this. Uh, and this gentleman who did the, the murderer, he was put on trial and he said, you know, he read those accounts. And, and what he realized is that Narutovich was brought into office because of this minority vote. And he said, he said, as a patriotic Pole, he had to kill him because he was illegitimate and that um, he was brought in by the Jews to create what he called Judeo-Polonia um, and that as a Pole, he had, to, he had to put his life on the line for Poland, right? Now, this was in the trial. He was convicted of murder and then he was executed. Uh, within a month of the incident. And I think what shocked Pilsudski is that after the assassination, this is January 1923, police reports showed that whole groups of Poles were putting the photograph of the assassin in their window (laughs) and celebrating him as a martyr of the people, as a martyr of the nation. And what he realized at that moment is that The polls are not yet ready for democracy. If you can have a free and fair election and the outcome is not what you desired and your response is violence to to advocate murder or killing of a president or violence, uh, then they're not ready to accept to be part of a functioning democracy, right? Because the Constitution had laid out exactly how this worked. So at that point, it's said that he became very embittered um, about Polish society, and especially those right-wing opponents of his who hammered away, and he believed were responsible for that assassination, that it was, it was profoundly irresponsible of them not to concede and to incite riots and incite crowds. So he vowed that he would never let them control the government again. This was just his kind of pledge. So why does he wait, right? But if, and by the way, there are some some, if any listeners here have been to this beautiful hotel in Warsaw called um, Hotel Bristol, there's a photograph there of Pilsudski that he 
entered there and gave a lecture to some of his comrades. Uh, and, uh, and that lecture was soon after this. It's the first time he spoke about it. And, and the, the bitterness of his language about what had just happened, that his right-wing opponents, he believed, were responsible for the assassination because they allowed this rioting and this rhetoric. And, and so in 1926, on May the 10th, after a series of, of, of economic crises, uh, emerging collapse of the Polish currency, um, the dramatic loss of, of you know, value of Polish currency. So people were suffering in economic way. There were many turnovers, turnovers of government. About every, um, we believe that um, on May 10th, I want listeners to know this, uh, it was the 14th government installed since 1919. So just imagine from 1919 to 1926, 14 successive governments, because it's a parliamentary system. You can do a no confidence vote. So governments would rise, you know, cabinets and regimes, and they'd fall in three months, four months. So when this happened on May 10th, we should note that it followed something that had happened that got Pilsudski's attention, which is in April 1926, Germany and Soviet Russia signed a military alliance, an agreement. And it said that one is what he saw was a re-enactment of the partitions in his mind. Poland is falling into decay, Mm -hmm. chaos, and its neighbors are are rising in strength and power, and he feared the collapse of Poland. That's one. Then on May 10th, the president of Poland named a new government because he had to. But it turns out he named um, uh, he named a new prime minister from the center right, who then formed an all right wing government, including members of the National Democratic Party, who had who had um, spearheaded that vicious press campaign. And Pilsudski, I guess he decided that we are now on the course towards the decay and crumbling of the democratic state. So, for example, part of that newly elected, newly named government were members who uh, had been um, openly anti-Semitic and were openly calling for quotas against uh, Jews in universities, limiting their rights, forcing Jews out of Poland. Um, He decided this is not the Poland he spent his whole life fighting for. And he just needed to march on the Capitol and speak with the president, who was his old friend from the Polish Socialist Party, Stanislaw Wojciechowski, and and essentially declare to him, you must dissolve this government. So he did that two days after the naming of the government. There's the famous scene where he's on the east bank of the Vistula River. Uh, Pro-Pilsudski members of the, of the army are behind him. He walks across the bridge. He meets President Wojciechowski. He demands that he he dissolved the government. Now, why do we know that Pilsudski was sure that the president would concede? Because one way is because his wife tells us in, in her memoirs that when he left that morning, he talked about what meal he wanted for lunch. And it was back at two o'clock, because I guess he always had lunch at two, and he talked about what meal he was going to. So he thought he'd just come to the capital because he lived in his kind of country estate. He would, the president would rename the government, and he'd be back for lunch. I don't think he would have said that if he planned a coup d'etat, right? What happened is the president said, absolutely not. We are a country of laws. This, this 
government has been legally established, you cannot just you cannot just demand that the president dissolve a government. And Pilsudski uh, decided he can't accept this, so he orders armed forces to start moving towards the the, uh, uh, the Polish White House, and then the pro government forces started fortifying um, the area of Warsaw uh, to protect the Belvedere Palace. The, residents of the president, and then they battle each other, these two forces. It lasted for three days. Apparently, Pilsudski never thought it would happen, but there were, um, you know, we believe um, about 900, uh, I'm sorry, about uh, approximately 1,000 casualties, but about 200 deaths from this, uh, military deaths uh, on, on both sides, total, I mean. Uh, and it was a absolute shock for the, the Poles to see a, essentially a civil war in the capital, civil unrest, Polish on Polish blood in the capital. Um, the result was that the president resigned, the prime minister resigned, Pilsudski um, was able to take power and name, uh, name a new government. Um, and uh, from that point on, we have a kind of turn towards what we call authoritarian, we can say authoritarian rule, and he will be in charge until his death in 1935. Now, I do want you know uh, listeners to know that that he still maintained. First of all, he will he will keep the constitution intact. He uh, he called for elections, uh, both for president and uh, for parliament. Um, they they elections went through. They, still, throughout his whole. Uh, the remaining part of his rule, there was a functioning parliament with an opposition with opposition parties and opposition press, which were hotly critical of Pilsudski, right? So it's not what we call a dictatorship in the sense that it's not a one-party system. There are opposition parties, there's a there's functioning opposition. There is freedom of press, but what we know is that there are certain times where Pilsudski ordered the confiscation of newspapers that where uh, he was tipped off there'd be editorials uh, particularly critical of him. And at certain points he did order, um, so he did violate the freedom of press um, clauses of the Constitution. Very ironic considering his background. <laughs> yeah, that is what surprises that We have these, these um, cases uh, where, yeah, uh, I mean, and, and you, you, you get this sense that he, he would – that the, the paper would come out, they'd be confiscated immediately, but one or two copies would get out to the press, even to the point where sometimes like the, the Times of London would get, you know, would get like one of those copies that didn't quite get confiscated and, 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 and you know, print excerpts of the editors, which were, which were and, and the editors were speaking about, it. it was on three or four occasions where he confiscated, it's when a, his opposition party called for uh, the dissolution of the Pilsudski regime. They're saying he is, he took uh, government by force. Uh, we are now, the functioning of the, of the parliament is being diminished and suppressed. Um, there's a lot of obstruction of parliamentary proceedings. And we believe, uh, and that he's not there by uh, legal means. It was an extra legal, and, and we call for the dissolution of the government. Those are the editorials that he had, he kind of had, Scrapped. Well, now when we get to 1930, if you'd like to, it's when he when he arrests members of parliament. 
I we're gonna have to. I mean, I, I we're we're I'm way sorry. over what I promised you or the listeners okay. for that matter. So yeah. I, I um, but I, I want to finish off. He, he as you said, he 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 died in 1935. Um, it's arguable whether the Polish regime, the Polish regime he left behind, is not exactly strong. Uh, sort of the internal contradictions that you've described is authoritarian, but their opposition parties, they kind of remain for the next four years of, of Poland's existence. His, as I said, I mean, Ladislaw Sikorski is one of his regional commanders. He'll be the leader of, of free Poland uh, in, in exile. Um, but Sikorski, um, who sh- was embittered against him very much by that time. Uh, and we could go through the list of other old comrades that he alienated. Uh, which it would have been a lot better for Poland if they had all been on the same side working together. Um, mm-hmm. He seems to me, as I was thinking about it, I, I, I was sending excited emails to you that he, he reminded me of Lee Kuan Yew, of all people, um, who was the dictator of Singapore. I mean, basically set himself up after uh, Singapore independence. And, what, and I guess what I, what, I, I, what I was thinking of is that someone referred to Lee Kuan Yew, that might have been Richard Nixon, actually, that if he had been prime minister of a much larger state, he would have been much more prominent, that it was his misfortune or good fortune to be a leader of a small place. Now, Pilsudski is, I think, I, I think listeners will have to agree if they've listened to the entire podcast so far, he's actually a, a world historical figure uh, because he is critical to what happens in Eastern Europe in the 1920s. And what happens in Eastern Europe in the 1920s is critical to the future of the 20th century. Um, so Pilsudski mm-hmm. is a world historical figure. And yet, if someone like him had been in, in Germany or France, we would know a lot more about him. So I'm very curious, mm-hmm. you had said this way at the beginning of the conversation, why sort of he had fallen out of the English speaker's sort of um, uh, knowledge of English speakers. And if we could just touch mm-hmm. on that sort of the, his sort of lack of, his surprising lack of reputation. What is the reason for that lack of reputation? Mm-hmm. My view on that is that the entire system of the organization of European states that that existed before World War II, which was a system of of international security based on the Treaty of Versailles, in which in which democratic sovereign states lying between Soviet Russia and Germany uh, would be protected by the great powers of the Western democracies, and they they would flourish as democ democracies, that that entire system collapsed in 1939 mm-hmm. with the partition not only of Poland, but all of Eastern Europe between fascist Germany and Soviet Russia, and the complete obliteration of that system after World War II, in which Soviet Russia then marched all the way to Berlin and remained there for the next 45 years, mm-hmm. so that the sovereign democratic Poland that Pilsudski brought about and believed was the linchpin to security in Europe, because it would be, in his view, the bulwark against the spread of communism from the East, and it would be a check on German aggression, that collapsed. And because it it collapsed and it was no more, his entire vision um, collapsed with it. And so that's why I believe during the Cold War, memory of him waned, because the place of Poland in European affairs also significantly waned. It was just one of the East Bloc countries under Russian occupation, but the real authority, the real power was Russia. Um, Now, in 1989, with 
the emergence of these newly sovereign East Bloc states, Poland will become gradually more important to the point where today it, it is also on the eastern border of the European Union and NATO uh, and has a much more central place. So I think that's why, for example, it's in 2018 that the first statue of Pilsudski is erected in Western Europe. It's in Brussels in 2018 to celebrate the 100th anniversary um, of the independence of Poland. And so it makes me think if that's the center of the European capital of of the European Union, uh, it's the home of the European Parliament. And if members of that Parliament and 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 you know visitors to Brussels are seeing this, it, it's just an example of how more and more they'll be known. Also, in the same year in Budapest, a statue of Pilsudski was erected, and I wonder if that's not going to begin to revise a little bit well um, i i of, mean of memory of pilsudski it's um you've been right you were working on the book a long time before february 24th 2022 yeah uh, the book arrives at a moment when people are desperate to find out what what the heck is going on now and it's amazing to me reading through it. I mean, I, I, obviously I couldn't help myself uh, to, to, to be reading it while also checking my Twitter feed constantly to see news from Ukraine. But it's amazing to me to see how in so many ways, things, lines that Pilsudski laid down, things that he worried about, things he was obsessed about, are all of a sudden relevant again. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. we're at this moment where Poland is all of a sudden the bulwark. <laughs> it's the eastern bulwark. And suddenly, as I, I said earlier, uh, a some sort of confederation between Lithuania and Ukraine and Poland looks a lot more possible than it ever has since, like, 1651. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's quite... It's extraordinary it's what you're saying insane. there. But, um, but, but here's Pilsudski who's at sort of at the heart of all this. I, I couldn't agree more that, that perhaps this moment has brought about an opportunity to, to re-examine his legacy. You know, um, I, you know, published an article in the Washington post um, two weeks ago in which I talk about how he was the only European statesman to champion the independence of Ukraine. But it's the reason he said, he said, he said, Ukraine will be the eastern outpost of the democratic ideal uh, against against what he called reactionary Russia. And we must bring about that, that sovereignty and we must fortify it and protect that sovereignty. And he said, otherwise, uh, otherwise, Russian encroachment on Europe will be a constant threat. Uh, and therefore, we have to push Russia back to its ethnic frontier. But but not just do that, but to hold it there through, uh, through force, meaning through viable defensive uh, bulwark against it, and I think that 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 kind of dialogue he had is so relevant to today. What he's saying, without an independent Ukraine, you know, Europe will not cannot be secure. And if you you know, and you think of what's happened in Poland since February twenty fourth, there are people who are, you know, believe there's an existential threat. Uh, awaiting them with if Ukraine falls. Uh, and Poland today is the single largest contributor of military aid to Ukraine. And it's and it's next to the United States, yeah. which is just incredible. When you look at that list and you see 
France, Britain, yeah. Italy down there. Yeah. Poland is much less um, um, wealthy. And, and how country. many millions of Ukrainians are is Poland now sheltering? Yes. I mean, in, right. in, now, in people's like, apartments and houses, yeah. people just moved in with them. I mean, you talk about a union of peoples. I mean, it's it's quite extraordinary. There 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 are things going on there that that we can't that journalism can't even capture of connections between nations. Yeah, 2.5 million Ukrainian immigrants yeah. are refugees in Poland and in a place where there's no refugee camps because Poles are taking them in. There's such an affiliation, there's such an identification of Poland uh, with Ukraine because they have been the victims of Russian aggression for centuries, if we think about it. You know, starting in, in uh, you know, the 17th century when Russia took Kiev from Poland in a war that started in 16. 16- uh, 48, and then you know, um, you know, three partitions, and then a, over a century of Russian occupation, uh, a pretty brutal occupation, right? So, and then you have our half century of of Soviet domination, but there's a sense of how do you create, you know, security? And I think for Pilsudski, he said the central underpinning of that security was France, meaning if France <laughs> in 1919 is the is the dominant military power in continental Europe, and it's the guarant- and they're the ones who have guaranteed the frontiers uh, that have come out of the World War One. Then that relationship is the key one, and 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 that's one of the things I show in my book is that is that you know Pilsudski, yeah, he had this right word right word uh, swing, authoritarian swing, but if you look at who the world leaders he met with and who he admired, they were. They were the presidents of France, Britain, and the United States. He never met with Mussolini, Stalin, or Hitler. He refused. He wanted nothing to do with them. And he and he abhorred the systems that they had created. So it's it's you know, it's that tells you something that in the last year of his life, who did he give the red carpet welcome to? The the foreign minister of France, mm-hmm. um, who uh, in 1934 less than a year before Pilsudski's death, made the comment that I'd never been received in such a warm way by any other world, uh, any other um, statesman than Pilsudski. So there's that sense of strong affiliation with France and the democratic um, tradition. My guest today has been Joshua Zimmerman. He's the author of Joseph Pilsudski, Founding Father of Modern Poland. And if you've gotten to the end of this podcast, you might be surprised to, you might not believe it, but there's lots in the book that we haven't even touched on. Uh, It's fantastic and it's very timely. Joshua Zimmerman, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 